This is the second part in a vault series on films of the Cold War. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and do that, because we aren't reviewing films chronologically. Instead, we're looking at the stages of Cold War crisis and nuclear emergency and how different films treat each of these phases in different ways. The first episode was escalation. This episode is all about how that critical threshold is crossed and how the missiles get launched. If you enjoy the show and appreciate what I do, please consider subscribing on Patreon to get access to the materials that go into making these shows, like troves of declassified documents and more. That's Cold War Vault at patreon.com. Long ago, in 1914, Russian military and economic power was on the rise. It had become a fearsome competitor in the gladiatorial combat of the great powers in Europe. The old powers, the imperial powers of an old world that was about to come to a murderous end. Serbia wanted independence from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and Russia backed Serbia. The French and British were collaborating militarily, seeing, after centuries, their common closeness in the context of the increasingly wider world. Everyone was developing intense military, industrial infrastructure, and political alliances based largely on loose identities, and, ironically, a wish to preserve the old world order. But that wouldn't be. When a young Bosnian Serb named Gavrilo fumbled his way into the successful assassination of the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, that empire wanted to strike back. But it was afraid of the Russian Empire, and so it asked its close cultural brother, Germany, to support it. Germany said, yeah, but they would need to act quickly, or Russia might intervene. France was also an ally of Russia, squeezing Germany into a very uncomfortable spot. Germany needed to attack France, win, and then turn to attack Russia. This was called the Schlieffen Plan. Russia started to jostle. France started to jostle. Germany took action. World War I began this way, with what Barbara Tuchman has famously called the Guns of August. In that Pulitzer Prize-winning history of the war, The Guns of August, Tuckman offers the anecdote, the quotable quote from the Chancellor of the German Empire, Theobald von Bethmann-Hollweg. In response to the question, how did it all happen? Bethmann-Hollweg says, ah, if we only knew. One theory, endlessly debated by scholars, because that's what scholars do, is that it happened because it was a clockwork that was designed, once set off, to fight a massive continental war. Whether there are contradictions to this isn't really important because, on the surface, that is certainly exactly what it looks like happened. It's useful for our analogy as well. The systems of alliances, technological developments, arrogance, miscalculations, and old-world pride 
that would take two global wars to wring out of Europe's centuries-old dirty laundry, all conspired to create a deadly machine. There's a quote even better than Batman Hallweg's to explain the construction of that machine that would lead to war. It's attributed to Otto von Bismarck, the Chancellor of Germany. He said, In a way, suicide for fear of death. Oh, the lessons that the First World War can still teach, and can teach us especially about the Cold War, because all of the mechanisms, the technologies, and the militaries that deployed them stood at the ready for those most dangerous decades, ready to use those weapons for mutual annihilation, out of fear that someone else might beat one or the other to the punch. Suicide out of fear of death. We have to wonder what spark might have started a nuclear war in the decades of the Cold War. Well, that question has been asked over and over in literature and film of the period. What is the spark that ignites those wars on pages and televisions and the big screen? And what does it say about the fears that ran through societies and the questions that were asked by the public and politicians from the beginning of the atomic age to the dissolution of the Soviet Union and even today? How did it all happen? Ah, if we only knew. This time on the Cold War Vault. Part 1. A Survey of Five Easy Paths to Nuclear War In this genre of nuclear war on film, what I've called these nuclear war simulations, or speculations, there are several ways that the spark of the war is represented. Actually, I would say five. Let's see if you agree, and see if the categories make sense in terms of your genre favorites. Sometimes there is no known cause, sometimes surprise attack. Often rising tensions give a real-world feel to the building anxiety of the situation. Nuclear terrorism certainly makes an appearance, with the nature of the terrorists changing over time. And finally, and most frequently and most prominently, miscalculation and error. All of these have been used to deliver different messages to an audience about the dangers of the Cold War standoff. Let's look a little deeper. First, no known cause. That is to say that humanity is a species with collective amnesia. A war occurred, usually in the distant past, or sufficiently distant to have forgotten what everyone got so upset about. The war has become the stuff of legend. Now, this particularly lends itself to something we'll talk about in the fourth installment of the series on film. Not today. Because if we don't know how the war started and civilization ended, then we can't very well talk about the mistakes that led to the launch but we certainly can talk about the aftermath. Second, surprise attack. 
A lot of the civil defense films I talked about in the previous episode in this series use the surprise attack scenario. The whole body of civil defense film relied on it to create a sense of perpetual preparedness. And the enemy, which is rarely stated, was universally understood to be the Soviet Union. In reality, surprise attack by a nation-state was considered to be fairly unlikely. As I've mentioned before, even intelligence assessments at the highest levels presupposed a period of escalating tensions rather than a surprise attack one morning out of the blue. What was considered during the Eisenhower era was a circumstance in which the Soviets might sneak weapons into harbors on merchant vessels and detonate them. That was very quickly disregarded by the intelligence community. What was considered during the Reagan administration was a combined surprise attack by Soviets, Cubans, and Nicaraguans using commercial airliners. But it was quickly determined that a concerted effort by high school kids hiding in the woods in Colorado would neutralize the invading force. That's a joke. That's Red Dawn, 1984. The only real surprise would have been rogues and terrorists. Which brings us to... Number three, terrorism. These are the films in which the missiles fly as a result of an act of terrorism. One example of how this usually played out during the actual Cold War is the 1983 made-for-television movie Special Bulletin. In it, the terrorists demand the disarming of the nuclear weapons present in Charleston Harbor. So you would have to call the terrorists nuclear protesters, ironically. Things go awry and Charleston ceases to exist. You'll have to watch it for the drama. But it doesn't start a war. Another example is by Dawn's Early Light in 1990 which imagines some rogue Soviet generals taking matters into their own hands. Though I should say that isn't the case in Trinity's Child, the book that inspired the movie. In the book, it's just a straightforward surprise attack. A special mention goes to Twilight's Last Gleaming from 1977 starring Burt Lancaster which is a middling kind of film about a rogue Air Force general hijacking a missile base. Though the Lone Wolf nuclear bomber is rarely used in the films of the Cold War proper, that is, the end of World War II to 1991, it comes up a lot and sometimes very realistically in the decades since. In the context of the geopolitical push and pull in the vacuum left by the end of the Soviet Union, Tom Clancy and his seemingly immortal ghost loved and continue to love this idea. The question is, could it start a global nuclear war? Sure. Remember the USS Maine in Havana Harbor in 1898? Or the USS Maddox in the Gulf of Tonkin in 1964? If someone wants to go to war, they will find a way. And nuclear terrorism just makes it easier. And even if it's only a little nuke. On to the fourth. Escalation. Second only to glitches and errors. 
Hostilities at first conventional and eventually nuclear are shown to be the inevitable result of some kind of swelling global tension. Now, the last episode went over escalation, and that often serves to put the powers on a wartime footing, making it far easier for any little spark to activate the plan. Be it Germany's Schlieffen plan in World War I, or the single integrated operational plans, the PSYOPs, in the United States, from John F. Kennedy to George W. Bush. The Cold War strategic situations of mutual assured destruction, called MAD, and various other nuclear use theories, called NUTS, were often seen as Rube Goldberg machines, complex and interlocking, with a trigger and convoluted path to an inevitable end. But as the Cold War went on, it became increasingly clear that there were multiple ways a war might start in a period of heightened tensions. But more importantly, and an important difference, was that there were many more ways to turn it off. Because escalation doesn't have to mean inevitable war. And when war does come from it, there's a lesson to be learned from the failure of that balance. But if you have your plan in place and it looks like standing dominoes, or the classic board game Mousetrap, then once it starts, it just wants to finish. There is a momentum, a tendency to stay in motion. And so we come to the fifth, glitches and errors. This underpins the drama, the suspense, the terror, and the tragedy of most films of the Cold War. While escalation offers a sense of helplessness in the face of the machine, the theme of these glitches and errors represents fear of the new and the unknown. The war, when it comes, is the result of some failure of technology or humanity, of glitches and errors. Error, as a cause, can be found in films across the entire period. Usually this mode is a reflection of general anxiety over advancing technology. Nuclear weaponry itself is an example of this, but also specifically over technologies designed to make nuclear war less likely that in turn cause the war. We'll get into the weeds on that confusing point, don't worry. David Denby of The New Yorker described the paradox this way. He said, each element makes some sort of sense in itself as a strategy, but in the aggregate, they produce an insane system of interlocking absolutes. When error, human or technological, is explored in film, it's usually portrayed as a single faulty link in the wider command and control apparatus. Everything goes perfectly until it doesn't. These pieces of command and control aren't fail-safe, as the phrase goes having the effect of preferring to prevent a nuclear war. They are usually, in reality and in film, systems that fail deadly. They are doomsday machines. Let me clarify that. Of course, this is all down to a philosophy of what you want the system to do and where you want to be when the system does it. And that's very complicated when it comes to nuclear deterrence. 
Is it meant to protect life? Yes. How? By promising to destroy life. That's mutual assured destruction. So, a miscommunication or failure that fails safe might prevent an accidental nuclear war, but if fail-safes are in place, they may too easily prevent the intentional retaliatory strike that's necessary for a viable deterrent. Strategic Air Command chose more often than not to fail deadly, and in doing so constructed the elaborate machinery of war that seemed guaranteed given time to do just that and start World War III. The accidental nuclear war is a theme that recurs in the genre and reflects anxieties about the layers of complexity and paradoxes meant to prevent nuclear war. In the afterword to Robert Kennedy's 1968 memoir of the Cuban Missile Crisis, 13 Days, Richard Neustadt and Graham Allison summarize this in a section titled The Nuclear Paradox. They say, quote, in a world of mutual superiority, neither nation can win a nuclear war, but each must be willing to risk losing. In order to be able to preserve certain values, the leaders must be willing not to choose destruction, but nonetheless to choose the risk of destruction. Let's explore the giant mouse traps of the Cold War and how those ever more complicated machines seemed ever more likely to be set off by these glitches and errors, and of course, how that fear was best represented in the movies. Part 2. Bugs and Bombs There is an often told and untrue story about an early computer scientist named Grace Hopper at the Harvard Computation Lab who found an actual bug, a moth in this case, in a relay that had been causing ghosts and glitches in the machine. This is allegedly where the term bug came from. Unfortunately for my narrative thread, it isn't true. Though the actual computer bug, the moth, is taped to the computer logbook and in the possession of the Smithsonian. Despite this disappointment, as I'm sure many of you have heard that story before, the concept of the moth that glitches the giant, most powerful computer running at the time is a perfect analogy for this part of the history. Because we have to ask, how can the most complex systems be brought down by little bugs. These can be systems of strategic philosophy, technological systems of defense, and the many military systems developed over the years and decades to fight and win wars. In fact, where did these systems come from that are designed to prevent nuclear war and to fight nuclear war, of course, and save whole countries? Where did they come from, these systems that could be brought down by little bugs? In 1954, U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles laid the groundwork for what would become the policy of mutual assured destruction with the concept of massive retaliation. Dulles said in a speech, Local defenses must be reinforced 
by the further deterrent of massive retaliatory power. A potential aggressor must know that he cannot always prescribe battle conditions that suit him. Big words. But by the end of the 1950s, the U.S. had the systems to back them up with advances in missile technology and the new submarine-launched ballistic missile, with the Soviet Union only slightly behind technologically. This led to the thought process that went, they might be able to get us, but we'll get them. And that thought process was followed on both sides. In 1960, a famed and iconic strategist at the Rand Corporation named Herman Kahn published a treatise titled On Thermonuclear War. It was presumably for bedtime reading. Kahn challenged the viability of the mad way of thinking with a thought experiment. Sometimes it's misconstrued by critics as an actual plan. This was the Doomsday Machine. Also, the Doomsday in a Hurry Machine and the Homicide Pact Machine. Afraid I don't understand something, Alexei. Is the Premier threatening to explode this if our planes carry out their attack? No, sir. It is not a thing a sane man would do. The Doomsday Machine is designed to trigger itself automatically. But surely you can disarm it somehow? No. It is designed to explode if any attempt is ever made to untrigger it. He said of these inventions, Discussing these idealized devices will both focus attention on the most spectacular and ominous possibilities and clarify a good deal of current strategic thinking. You may know the fictionalized versions of Herman Kahn. One is Dr. Krotoschella in the novel and the film Failsafe. Another is a certain Dr. Strangelove both of which we will speak of later. But of course, Kahn was creating an absurd proposition to illustrate a point, not a technical proposal. Very much like Schrodinger's cat. Kahn suggested that these hypothetical machines were designed to be the perfect deterrent, allowing a world-destroying volley of weapons or a global radioactive cloud to be released in the event that certain conditions might be met, such as an attack on the United States. The doomsday machines would be run by a computer, allowing for an automatic response that, as he put it, eliminates the human element, including any possibility of a loss of resolve as a result of either humanitarian consideration or threats by the enemy. Though obviously a facetious thought experiment, the doomsday machine illustrates the pervasive fear of a mechanized response to nuclear war and the automation of matters of life and death, like, I suppose, the superposition of a kitty cat. Another piece of policy that increased these anxieties was the movement toward launch on warning. Jerome Wiesner of the President's Science Advisory Committee and later the Science Advisor to John Kennedy suggested this possibility in a report to Eisenhower in 1959. Wiesner felt that the new ballistic missile early warning system, the BMUs, could give reliably early warning of incoming ICBMs and allow for U.S. missiles to be launched, thereby escaping the equally unappealing options of preemption, the first strike which U.S. planners aboard, or retaliate after rideout, meaning 
take the beating, dust off, and hit back. Which was a dirty business and not at all guaranteed as a strategy. As sensing technologies improve, like radar and satellites, the hair trigger of the launch on warning option became more evident. In reality and in film, a list of nuclear close calls and false alarms also shook the public's faith in the safeguards and mechanisms of command and control, and planted the new anxiety in popular culture. During the Suez Crisis in November 1956, misinterpretations of events, notably radar signatures, led to NORAD briefly wrestling with the implications of Soviet intervention in the conflict. Analysis later showed that Soviet aircraft over Turkey were birds. And 100 MiG-15s over Syria were actually an Air Force escort for the Syrian president returning from a visit to Moscow. A BMU's radar installation at Thule, Greenland issued a report of a massive Soviet attack on the 5th of October 1960. NORAD went on maximum alert but eventually figured out that the missiles were an illusion. They were just the moon rising over Norway. A stunningly dangerous incident occurred in the final hours of the Cuban Missile Crisis when a computer test tape simulating a missile launch from Cuba indicated that Tampa, Florida was minutes from annihilation. Coincidentally, a satellite appeared over the horizon at the appointed time supporting the test tape. Crisis was averted when Tampa failed to vaporize. On the 23rd of May, 1967, another failure of the BMU's system put U.S. nuclear forces on alert. This time the sun was at fault, as solar flares had disabled several radar installations, looking eerily like the first step of a Soviet surprise attack. By 1971, there was a widespread understanding of the danger. From the top down, the U.S.-Soviet Accident Measures Agreement states, quote, Despite the most elaborate precautions, it is conceivable that technical malfunction or human failure, a misinterpreted incident or unauthorized action, could trigger a nuclear disaster or nuclear war. In 1974, there seemed a possibility of a very human failure. Author Eric Schlosser writes that in Richard Nixon's final days in office, the president was, quote, clinically depressed, emotionally unstable, and drinking heavily. As his situation worsened, Secretary of Defense James Schlesinger told the head of the Joint Chiefs to ask for his approval before acting on any emergency order coming from the president. Over nine months between 1979 and 1980, NORAD computer and radar systems caused five false indications of inbound Soviet missiles. I've talked about all of these in some detail in a previous series on all of the troubles leading up to the extremely dangerous 1983 military exercises. Have a listen to that to get even more background on exactly why it is that popular culture seized on this and saw an accidental start to war not just as possible, but likely for decades. From the tensions of the Cuban Missile Crisis to the unraveling safeguards of the 1980s, it's a fascinating bunch of stories. Part 3. 
mousetraps, and powder kegs. If I asked you what starts a global catastrophe in film today, I could imagine answers like failure to deal with climate change or runaway computer intelligence or zombies. Well, the first is really an international political failure to deal with the perceived existential threat. And that is very much the same concern expressed throughout the Cold War regarding arms control and conflicting alliances. Runaway computers and AI is the concern that technological innovation will be turned against the creators. Pandora's box open, the curses unleashed. From the atomic bomb to all of the mechanisms that made the arms race possible and took humanity to the fever pitch of the Cold War's destructive possibilities. As for zombies, well, no one really wants to pay off their student loans, do they? And so let's talk about human error and technological failure and the whole spectrum of anxieties it introduced. The 1959 film On the Beach ignored the geopolitical road to war that had been laid out in the 1955 novel by Neville Shute. That would fall under the escalation category. The film blames the nuclear war on a technological accident. The scientist Julian Osborne explains it this way. I'll let Fred Astaire say it. Tell me this whole damn war was an accident? No. It wasn't an accident. I didn't say that. It was carefully planned down to the tiniest mechanical and emotional detail. But it was a mistake. It was a butte. In the end, somehow granted the time for examination, we shall find that our so-called civilization was gloriously destroyed by a handful of vacuum tubes and transistors. Probably 40. The 1963 film Ladybug, Ladybug leaves us unsure of whether a nuclear war has started at all. Or maybe it's just a state of technologically induced paranoia. Here's the scenario. Ladybug, Ladybug deals with a civil defense warning at an elementary school and plays out as a psychological drama as teachers try to walk their students home in the hour before an impending attack. In the first minutes of the film, the school's light warning box, which is sometimes called a bell and light box, sounds the yellow alert, indicating a nuclear attack within one hour. This was a US civil defense system that used telephone lines and an electromechanical box. At first, the staff is skeptical. One teacher says it this way, Probably test ring. I was at Roxbury School. No, yesterday. we had our test ring this morning at 9:30. We have it at 9:30 every morning. Darn mechanism. Probably something's gone haywire somewhere. Well, I've got to get back. I've got all my ice cream to put away. The film's title comes from a traditional nursery rhyme with ladybird substituted in British English. Ladybird, ladybird, fly away home. Your house is in fire and your children are gone. All except one, and her name is Anne, and she hid under the baking pan. It ends with one of the kids hiding in a scrapped refrigerator, potentially to suffocate. 
We're left unsure if the attack warning was real or just a technical fault. Uncertainty and fear over the failure of technology will have cost the life of at least that one. No bombs are ever shown. If the attack is meant to be real, then maybe another old version of the nursery rhyme is what the filmmakers intended. It goes, Ladybird, Ladybird, fly away home. Your house is on fire. Your children shall burn. The next year, 1964, saw the release of two films that showed how technological faults and human error could collude to cause disaster. You know them, and you love them. Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, based loosely on the 1958 novel Red Alert by Peter George, and Failsafe, based on the 1962 novel of the same name by Eugene Burdick and Harvey Wheeler. Actually, the books and subsequent movies are similar enough that Peter George, Red Alert, Dr. Strangelove, sued Burdick and Wheeler, Failsafe, for plagiarism, and during the production of the film versions, going on at the same time as the lawsuit, Stanley Kubrick and Columbia Pictures sued to halt the production of the Failsafe film adaptation. In both movies, fears are raised about the ability to maintain control of nuclear weapons when simple pieces of the command and control apparatus fail. The events of Dr. Strangelove are triggered by the paranoid delusions of a strategic air command general who uses Wing Attack Plan R to unilaterally attack the Soviet Union. In Failsafe, a misidentified civilian airliner causes a strategic air command alert and the bombers proceed to their failsafe points, which are positions near the Soviet border where the planes would wait for orders. When the mistake is discovered, a recall order is issued, but due to Soviet radar jamming, some planes proceed on their bombing missions anyway, lending irony to the title, which is a major theme. The failure of technology unfurls itself in the disasters of Dr. Strangelove when a surface-to-air missile damages the radio equipment in one of the bombers, making it impossible to bring back, even when SAC issues the command. In Failsafe, when the Soviet radio jamming stops and all orders are finally given, the crews of the advancing bombers follow their training precisely and ignore the signal, making human rigidity the problem. The human element, the system, did exactly what it was supposed to do. It failed safe or deadly. Both Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe interweave the human and technological to explore the anxieties surrounding the complex mechanisms of command and control and the many ways that a single faulty piece of that system could put a nuclear war in motion. Two additional films express similar anxieties about technological failure of command and control systems, particularly computer failure, though not all are necessarily serious looks at elements of nuclear war. But they are much loved by Cold War kids and listeners to the vault, so I would never want to disappoint. The first is Colossus, the Forbin Project, from 1970, 
It deals with a defense computer given control of the U.S. nuclear stockpile. Based on the 1966 novel Colossus by D.F. Jones, the computer eventually attains sentience, links with its Soviet counterpart, and conspires to control the world through nuclear blackmail. It is Skynet before Skynet was Skynet. That's the Terminator franchise, 1984 to present. War Games, released in 1983, asks the questions about over-reliance on technology in war planning and illustrates the danger of mutual assured destruction in the Reagan era. Like Colossus, it questions the role of technology and automation in the effort to remove human variables from nuclear command and control. In the film, Air Force missileers at ICBM installations are replaced by a supercomputer that is given control of the U.S. nuclear force. A teenage hacker, Ferris Bueller, accidentally accesses the War Operation Plan Response Computer, the Whopper, and begins a series of misinterpreted simulations that might lead to war. Through quick thinking and Hollywood magic, that war is narrowly averted when the computer is tricked into simulating every conceivable nuclear exchange and learns the concept of mutual assured destruction. It says this. Strange game. The only winning move is not to play. The film is certainly a Reagan-era parable, but also an expression of anxieties about technological failure in command and control, updated for the 1980s age of personal computing. It stands as the first example of a computer hacker potentially initiating a nuclear war. Dead Man's Letters, for Letters from a Dead Man, is a rare Soviet entry into the genre. It's an exceptionally serious and gritty film that shows the immediate aftermath in gruesome detail. And the means by which the worst case scenario comes to pass do not match this at all. A defense computer error that will initiate a missile launch is spotted by the computer's operator. He chokes on his coffee, rendering him unable to give commands that would have prevented the launch. Despondent over his mistake, he hangs himself in the bathroom. It is not a comedy. One of the last serious nuclear war films in the Cold War is By Dawn's Early Light, adapted from the novel Trinity's Child by William Prochnow. The novel and film differ in their explanations for the outbreak of hostilities. The film blames a nuclear detonation by terrorists, while the book describes a small Soviet first strike. By Dawn's Early Light is the story of the collapse of the continuity of government and the march toward a wider global war. When the President of the United States is lost, though not killed, in the initial attack, the Secretary of the Interior becomes his successor and is advised by his hawkish generals to launch a massive retaliatory attack. The two simultaneous presidents have to struggle with their isolation in the general confusion. The film deals with the failure of communications technology and the way that it compounds the difficulties with the nuclear command and control structure, already strained in the difficult post-attack environment. 
It also explores the impact that personalities could have in deciding the fate of the planet in a nuclear conflict. In another example of the fail-safe, fail-deadly paradox, the climax of the novel, and unfortunately somewhat diluted in the film, deals with the impending launch of U.S. submarine-launched ballistic missiles, which will escalate the exchange to a global nuclear war. If the two presidents issue conflicting orders, the submarine captains will assume that communications have been compromised and follow their previous orders. These fail-safe orders are to surface and listen for a no-go message. If no message is forthcoming, they are ordered to launch. Further destruction is only averted when the crew of the airborne command post, known as Looking Glass, mutiny, and ram Air Force One, failing one mission and succeeding in another. Only history can decide the terms by which the actions will be judged. Part 4. Lessons and Legacies In so many films of the genre, nuclear war isn't a failure of deterrence. It's an accident or a kind of fumbling into war. Failure in the many safety protocols and technologies results in an accidental launch of nuclear weapons. This topic is still an important part of fully understanding the nuclear threat today, and as time goes by and layers of safety are applied to the command and control machine, the threat of an accident actually becomes even greater. This in itself is a paradox, I understand that. This is sometimes called the Titanic effect. This is a term used in engineering and a variety of other fields to describe a similar problem. Eric Schlosser summarizes it this way. He says, The safer you assume your system to be, the more dangerous it is becoming. Essentially, the layers of complexity that are added to a system contribute to the likelihood of a failure of one or more of those layers, all of which are relied upon. The longer the world goes without an accidental nuclear event, the more safe the system is assumed to be and the greater the likelihood that a disaster will eventually occur. These accidents of Cold War deterrence shown in the films that deal with that subject give us a starting point for understanding the way that cultural representations mirrored the anxieties of society. Who is the enemy? Is it technology? Runaway systems that we put too much faith in? Or is it humans who can't be trusted in Washington or the Kremlin or even in a hollow mountain somewhere out west staring at a screen in a dim room? What we do know is when mistakes have happened in command and control, those mistakes get fixed. But what we see in film lets us see out past that shallow horizon of reactive refinements to command and control, to what might be, not what has been. Because when the next close call comes, you are more likely to have seen it in the movies than read about it in the New York Times. Or maybe the spark that starts it off has never been imagined at all, and it's still lurking 
just a quiet little bug in the works, a moth in the machine. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Vault. Share the show with people who share your interest in important history and the philosophical questions it raises. Consider becoming a Patreon supporter and please rate and review The Vault wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And remember, complex systems and little bugs don't mix, but they seem to always be found together. Until next time.